Buenos días, Iglesia. ¿Cómo estamos esta mañana? I'm preaching in Spanish for Pastor Adrian next Sunday, so I'm going to get a little practice, and I hope I do well. So we'll see. Next Sunday, you might not want to tune in for the Spanish service. I'm just saying. I'm more uh, fluent in English. Have you guys ever thought of God's will? What is God's will? Maybe sitting at home in your prayer, you're asking God, God, show me what your will is in my life today. Ever thought of that? I know I have quite often. I think if we're honest, though, we know what God's will is in our lives, but we tend to change God's will for our will in our lives. I think a lot of us believe that God's will is for us to be happy. Look around. We're living in a state of the nation. We're living in a season of whatever's important to me, whatever makes me happy, it's God's will. We've become gods instead of following the only and true God. And a lot of it has to do with the church teaching. I mean, we have this super popular prosperity gospel being taught all over our nation and worldwide. They want to go in there. People want to go in there, and they don't want to hear the truth because the truth offends. They want to hear whatever makes them happy. And pastors all over the world are preaching God's word out of context. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah 29, 11. We're kind of familiar with this, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. This verse was written back in the days before graduation. This is not intended for a graduate. And that's what we see, right? In other words, in context, God is telling the prophet Jeremiah, tell my people that this bondage that they're in, in Babylonian, the, the bondage that they're in is not going to be like that forever. As a matter of fact, if we read 70 years later, the Israelites were no longer dispersed. But still... They're not prospering. We get context verses like this and say it must mean for now. And see, we like the Israelite people back then are not free. We're in captivity. We're enslaved to sin because we live in a sinful world. This, how does it apply to us? There's something better to come. Not in this world, but in the world to come. So we've changed God's will of glorifying him into glorifying ourselves. So we believe the truth that if I'm not happy, then God's not happy. If I'm not happy with my marriage, then I'll divorce. Because God's will is my happiness. If I'm not married for God, who God made me to be as a man and I want to become a woman, I'll become a woman. Because that's what makes me happy. I'll marry whomever I want, man, woman, because God's will is my happiness. We've been brainwashed with that. My body, my choice, and having a child will not make me happy. And what do we do? We're living at church. And what we're going to see today in God's word is really what is God's will? What does that look like? And what does it mean? What does it produce? So if you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be opening up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Let me just give you a quick recap of where we're at. And here, Paul's going to start changing to a new subject. In the first three chapters, we kind of went over what he was talking to this church in Thessalonica. And he was saying, man, I'm so proud of you, the way you're living. You're living in love. You're living in faith. You're living in hope. As a matter of fact, you're making a scandal, a good scandal. Because people are noticing your difference. And people want to imitate you like you imitating us. It's discipleship. And then we see that he starts getting accused of some false allegations. Paul does. They start telling him, hey, man, he came and preached to you guys for the wrong reasons. These early converts were being brainwashed as well. And then we learned last week that he longs to be with them. He had to leave them for a short while, and he sends Timothy to check on their faith specifically. And then he gets the good news that they're doing great, that they're flourishing, and that's encouragement to him and to Silas. And today, like I said, we're going to change the subject just a little bit. So verse 1, chapter 4, opens up like this. Finally. Now, it's not a conclusion. Again, he's just changing the subject. In other words, it could also be read, and now, something else. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's saying, you guys are doing great. You're doing awesome. Just like we told you. Just like Jesus Christ told you and me. But don't stop. Do it more and more. I ask you. It's a nice way. And then he says, I urge you. And that word urge in Greek is more of a military command. I command you to keep on doing it. Keep doing it more and more and more. There's no stopping. He goes on. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Black and white, clear as day. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does sanctification mean? In our men's ministry that I'm going through right now, Regen, I, I looked at this definition that the author wrote, and I thought, man, this is pretty practical and right on. He writes this, sanctification means being holy like Christ, a transformation requiring a change in desires, get this, habits, goals, and loves. The more you know, love, and follow Jesus the more your heart and mind will become Christ-like. That is sanctification, changing you from the inside out, being more and more like Christ because you realize more and more what he did for you and for me. You fall more and more in love with him. So here's a point for today. This is what God's will is. God's will in my life is holiness, not happiness. Holiness. Holiness means set apart. And here, here's how you become holy. And what starts the process of your sanctification. 
The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. At that moment, the Bible says that you are justified. You are made right before God. We're still sinners, but in God's eyes, when he looks down at you, when he looks down at me, he doesn't see the sinful people that we are. He sees whom we've trusted. Justification. Let me give you an example. How many of you guys remember the O.J. Simpson trial? All right, there's some older guys like me. Come on, right? I thought, probably like the whole world thought, that he was guilty, even if the glove didn't fit. All the evidence pointed that he murdered those two people. But that morning, when the whole world was watching and the judge said, not guilty, O.J. Simpson could never, ever be tried for those two murders. And everybody went, what? In the same manner, the moment we trust Jesus Christ, God says, in my eyes, you're not guilty. That is your justification. Then starts what's called your progressive sanctification. What does that mean? We become more and more like Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Now we're different. We say things we didn't used to say before. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I can't believe I said a bad word. I can't believe I yelled at my husband, my wife. Your sanctifications, they're ups and downs. And the Holy Spirit guides us through that. And at the end, when we see our maker face to face, it's our glorification. No longer will we have sin. That's sanctification, holiness set apart. And you know what, church? When you're sanctified, when we become more and more and more like Christ, there's no happiness. There's joy. Big, big difference. I used to be happy all the time when things were going right. Happiness is dependent on our happenings. When things are going south, we're not happy. The joy of being in Christ, the joy of sanctification is that no matter what's going around you, you will not lose your joy. And that's what these people were going through. People were asking, how can you be so joyful? We're being persecuted. We're suffering. Nowadays, I hope people are asking you, how can you be so joyful when this and this is happening all around? And we can say, Jesus Christ. The true joy that no one, nothing can take away. God's will is our holiness, our sanctification. And from that, trust me, you'll have joy. That's what... Paul is telling you, Paul is telling them. And then he's going to go on and describe to us what does that look like. The first thing we're going to see, it it looks like self-control. To avoid sexual immorality. Back then, what was going on in that area, people were doing whatever they wanted to. Husbands had multiple wives, wives. There were orgies back and forth. As a matter of fact, people in Athens would go to a temple to worship a god, many, many gods, and they had to act in sexual immorality for worship towards them. We read all over Paul's letter, the church to Corinth, the church to Ephesus, this church letter that he's writing to now, sexual immorality is not sanctification. So he says this in verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's using the difference, you know God, do not act like those that do not know God. He says that no one transgress, that no one sins and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger. He's not saying that the Lord is Iron Man, all right? I'll tell you what he means. In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit. Holiness. In Greek, hagiosmos, set apart, sanctified. And he says, do not involve yourself in sexual immorality. Pronia in Greek, which captures so many things. Sexual immorality, what it means if you are having sex outside what God said the marriage bed should be, then you are conducting in sexual immorality. And God says that the marriage should be between a man and a woman in holy matrimony. Genesis 2.24. Look it up. Matthew 19.16, I believe. Look it up. Jesus himself saying, sexual immorality is anything apart from that. Pornography, homosexuality, sex before marriage is sexual immorality. Again, look around, church. Aren't we like those people back then? Ah, I'm in love with the same gender, so I'm going to marry them. And here's what Paul is warning to the people in Thessalonica, and Paul is warning us, do not act like if you do not know God. We know because we've been taught. We know because we are made in his image that it is wrong to step outside the marriage bed. I'm not going to talk to you for the remainder of the sermon politically. But I am going to talk to you biblically. And if this is not our authority, if we don't believe that this is God's word, then you do not know God. And church, sadly, we're becoming a nation not under God, but a nation that does not know God. Back then, these people were looking around saying, it's okay. You can have many wives. You can do whatever you want. Now, it's becoming normal. It's becoming normal. I see commercials. Sex is everywhere. It's becoming too normal. And we need to stand up and say, enough is enough. We need to show others around us that this is the true authority. And if it's not God's will, then it's not right. Knowing God means walking in the spirit and not our fleshly desires. And Paul says you need to control yourself because God is an avenger of all transgressions. What does he mean? God is going to deal with sin one way or another. One day every knee will bow. And we're all going to have to answer why we did what we did and why we didn't do what we didn't do. 
And he says it causes harms to others. Sexual immorality is not right. You're harming others. You're transgressing. You're sinning against others. We see that, right? So many people being hurt. Families being broken up. Don't. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you fall into sexual immorality, or really any sin, you're hurting not only man, but you're hurting God, the Holy Spirit that dwells in every single believer. Paul says this about the power of the Holy Spirit for us to restrain ourselves. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Every morning, wake up and put on the full armor of God and say, I'm going to do your will, God, not mine. And I'm going to walk by the Spirit. He goes on in verse 7. Again, he says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He's saying, look, if you walk by the flesh, if you walk like everyone else is doing, you're disregarding God. Who are you trying to please? Are you trying to fit in with society and what the world says? Or are you trying to please God and what he says? Besides sexual immorality, he says, we need to live in brotherly love, agape, love one another. That's what you're called to do. That is the will of God. Verse 9, he says this, now concerning agape, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Jesus' command. That's what he says. We heard it from Jesus himself. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this. Again, he says it more and what? More. Do this more and more. Don't stop. Keep on loving each other. Love each other unconditionally. Let that love go beyond the church itself. Let others see it the way Macedonia is seeing it. Keep doing it. So proud of you is what I hear Paul saying. Do it more and more and more. And then he says... This is what I suggest. Here's what I'm commanding you to. How to love your brother more and more. Verse 11, three things he mentions. <clears throat> and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. I'm going to break these down for you because they're so practical and so clear. Live quietly. And it doesn't mean that you have to be quiet. That's not what he's saying. Live a quiet life. Live a peaceful life. Don't over-exaggerate everything. Back then, they were so looking forward to Christ's return, which is a good thing, and we're called to do that, wait in anticipation. But they were being low, really, really loud in the wrong way. The earth is coming to an end. Ah! And people were freaking out. They weren't expressing brotherly love. They were panicking. And Paul is saying, Live quietly. Love one another. And then he says, mind your own affairs. No seas metiche. Do what you got to do. Live God's will. Man, I see Facebook nowadays. Everybody's got something to say. No, this and that and this and that. You're wrong. 
do your thing. Please, God. Don't look down on others. I can't believe he voted for this person. I can't believe. Look, follow God's word. That's all we're called to do. Mind your own affairs. And then last but not least, he says, work with your own hands. Let me give you some context as well. People back then, because they knew that Christ was returning, were saying, why do I have to work? There's no need. So they're literally not working. And Paul says, no, you need to pick up and work. As a matter of fact, it's still a problem because we read about this same issue in 2 Thessalonians, a second letter. And look what he says. And he writes to them again, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. You're still being lazy, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. If I was preaching this next week in Spanish, this is what I would say. Si pueden trabajar, trabajen, no sean flojos. That's what he's saying. Work. What are you doing? Don't be lazy. God has given you a gift. And no matter what work you're doing, you do it for his glory. And then he says, why do we do these things? Verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Being dependent on people, being dependent is not brotherly love. But more importantly, so others will notice. When you're living differently, when you're living God's will, when you're being sanctified, people are going to see the difference. And then hopefully they're going to want to imitate you. Again, we are living in a season, in a nation, where we need to be different, even though it hurts. You know who lived this perfectly? Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't have to be sanctified, but he surely was glorified. Being truly God and truly man, we read in the garden that he's there praying with sweat of blood, asking God, God, if there's any other way, is there any other way for our people, our chosen ones to be sanctified, if there's any other way but me going to the cross Please, three times. And he goes and he tells his best friends, pray with me. Pray with me, I'm hurting. But at the very end, and every time he prays, he says, not my will be done, but your will. And if it's to the cross, I have to go, I will go. Because I love my people. Sacrifice. And we're called to sacrifice. Church, let me leave you with this. What would it look like if we purposely lived our lives in true sanctification, transforming from the inside out? What would it look like for you, parents, teaching your children God's will, not the world's will? What would it look like, parents, if you taught your children you need to glorify God every single day, not glorify yourselves? It would change the homes. And I tell you this time and time again, it would open up further than that into communities. Then a community like ours, like our family, would come together and all of us living in his will and sanctification, it would make some noise and people would start noticing beyond Laredo, into Texas, into our nation, so we can be a nation again that knows God, 
not drifting further and further and further away from God, what would that nation look like? A nation that knew God's will, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's it. A nation that knew that there's only two genders, a man and a woman, and that's it. A nation that knew that it's not your choice who lives or dies. It is God. A nation that knew that abortions were sins. And that's it. A nation that knew that didn't have to be dependent and gimme, 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 but if you're capable of working, work. That's what a nation that knows God looks like. We're going to fail. And all these things that were falling apart, little by little, God forgives those who repent. Let's point others to the gospel and tell them what God's will is. When we do that together, again, I believe we become a nation that knew that God's will in my life is holiness, not happiness. Will you pray with me? Father, we do give you thanks and praise. And Father, I thank you that whomever comes to repentance, whomever trusts your Son as their Lord and Savior, they are justified. They are sanctified in your eyes. And Father, we're guilty of committing so many sins, sexual immorality, but we know that every sin has been forgiven through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. May we be a people that comes to our knees and repents, starts knowing you, Father, more and more. And if we committed these sins of adultery, of abortion, of any sort of sexual immorality, Father, that you accept them the way they are and that you will work in them if you let us be transformed from the inside out. Father, I know that is your will. Our sanctification, our holiness. We love you, Father. And help, help us through the Holy Spirit live in that day and day until we see you face to face. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I love you, church. God bless you.